What help do we have when fear is causing us to hide in case we are found out? Now, maybe it's a, it's a weakness. Maybe it's an illness you have. Maybe it's a past sin you've committed. Maybe it's something that was committed against you. I don't know what it is, and we're not going to be sharing stories. So don't worry, okay? Your anonymity and your secrecy is secure. But God is in this room today. And I believe that all my heart, and watching online, wherever you're watching from, whether it's a plane, train, or anything else, God is with you. God is here. And we're asking the question, what help do we have when fear grips us to the point that we hide those things? We suppress them, we bury them in case they get found out. So today we're going to do something different. Today we're going to do like an overview of Scripture. I want to give you six biblical examples. This may surprise you. Because sometimes when you think with the Bible, especially if you're not a Christian uh, or not a person of faith or haven't been in church a long time, we think of heroes in the Bible, these mega names, these mega characters as being like perfect men and perfect women. They're like, the, the men are like the dude from the old Spice ad, riding the horse, you know what I'm saying? Like perfect physique, great diction, lovely teeth, you know what I'm saying? He's, he's the angel Gabriel incarnate and, and the women, well, I'll just let you think about for yourself. And so, and so we think about these characters being perfect. That's why God... Surely God called these people because they're perfect and they're sinless and, and they're able and so on. But what I want to show you is that every single, this is just six, every single one of these characters not only was human and therefore by definition a sinner, but everyone had in common to try to hide something for fear they'll be found out. Let's start with the obvious one. Let's start with Moses. Now arguably, Moses is one of the greatest characters in the Old Testament, whether you're from a Jew to a Christian faith, or even from a Muslim faith, the character of Moses is a pretty significant person because he had such a big role. We know Moses as being the guy who confronts Pharaoh, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, you know what I'm saying, the Ten Commandments. I mean, Moses is a pretty big deal. But long before Moses was leading the Lord's people into the Promised Land, Moses was a murderer. Moses killed someone in cold blood. Like Moses, Moses killed another human being in cold blood. And not only did he do it and go, oh my gosh, because I'm such a good Christian, I should admit it straight away. No, no, he killed someone and then he did something that we all do. He tried to hide it. Look with me in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, so it's gone from cute to acute, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Look, I, I, I mean, it's not funny, but I love how it's phrased in Scripture. Looking this way and that way. You know what I'm saying? Because we all do that, don't we? We're all like, I'm going to go to this light. Look right, look left, look up. Guards around, no, okay. Like, look this way that way. And seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now just take your time out for a second. As far as I'm concerned, one of the qualifications for leading the Lord's people should be, you don't kill people. Like you don't murder people in cold blood and you definitely don't bury them in the sand. Now, here's the interesting thing. The, the action came from the right place. Moses saw the injustice that was happening against his own people Right? And he reacted. He felt something we all feel, 
when we see injustice. He felt responsibility, which is a good thing. When you see people suffering, when you see injustice in this world, especially if you're a Christian, we are not allowed to turn a blind eye to injustice. We love and worship and proclaim a Savior, a God of justice, a God of the broken, a God of the downtrodden, a God of the voiceless, a God who fights for those who cannot fight for themselves. That's why as a church, we're so engaged in things like trying to eradicate poverty and trying to educate children in third world countries and even in our own country, human trafficking and all these things because the church cannot and should not intolerate injustice. We are responsible. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. And so he felt something we should feel when we see injustice, responsibility. But unlike us, he acted in a very unwise way. Why? Because he lashed out in rage. And there's a difference between holy anger, holy discontent, and rage. Like, Jesus got angry. I know we think of Jesus as this, like, you know, cute Swedish dude with long blonde hair and a blue sash and feminine features and rosy cheeks and doves flying all around him. And I, oh, Jesus is so wonderful. You know, but this is the same Jesus that kicked over tables and whipped uh, 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 people, uh, people, whipped the air with a, with a, with a whip and, and cast people. I mean, Jesus got angry. Anger is not a sin. It's what we do with our anger that becomes sinful. We can be angry for the right reasons. You're thinking, man, you're so angry. I am angry that right now children are dying of starvation on our earth. I'm angry about that. I'm angry that young women are being trafficked around the world for exploitation. I'm angry at that. I'm angry at a lot of things because it's wrong and it should not exist. And as a Christian, my faith informs me that I can't afford to be uh, on the fence on these issues. I should care. But there's a difference between having a holy discontent and lashing out in rage. So Moses not only felt something we all feel, but Moses did something that we all do when we make a mistake. And that is, he covered it up. He realized he made a mistake. In fact, if you read the story in context, which you should do later on, uh, we're told that the next day he was talking to two Hebrews who were fighting with each other. And he tried to kind of calm them down. They're like, hey, who, who are you to speak to us? We saw what you did. We saw that you killed someone. You are a hypocrite. And so Moses did what we all do. He tried to cover up. And the question is, like, we know this is not right, right? Come on, in the room online. We know that covering up our transgression, covering up our mistakes is never a good thing. In fact, we have a, we, we say a cover-up, right? a, a governmental cover-up or a, or, a, or a corporate cover-up. It's never a good thing. We don't cover up good things. We cover up bad things. So why do we keep doing this? Well, because we, we, we buy into a lie. And the lie that we buy into is, if it is hidden, it cannot hurt. If it is hidden, it cannot hurt. That's the that's lie that we buy into that. That if I bury it deep enough and far enough and long enough and no one finds out, surely it cannot hurt me. And the truth is, when we bury our sin, it will eventually find us out. It's like Proverbs said. Eventually, some way, some shape, some form, it will come out. The wind will blow and the sand will disappear and the things that we have buried will be laid bare for everyone see and so Moses not only did he murder someone but he tried to cover it up for fear that he's found out here's our second character our second character is a lady called Delilah okay if you've never read the story of Samson and Delilah you're missing out on life this is a story of one of history's most illicit affairs okay forget your romance novels read the bible people it's incredible okay this is one of history's most illicit 
affairs. In Judges chapter 16, verse 17 to 19, here's what it says. And I'll just set up the story first. So basically this guy called Samson was called by God to kind of lead his people at a time in history. But part of that calling was a responsibility to walk with integrity, which Samson did not in any way at all. Okay? And what God gave Samson was he gave him, as you probably heard, this ability, this strength. He gave him just raw strength. But that was attached to a commitment that he made to God as what's called a Nazarite. And it was a vow. It was a vow that he would never drink wine and he'd never cut his hair. And so Delilah, this woman, okay, who he's having an affair with, um, she is paid by Samson's enemy to find out the source of his strength. And a couple of times he messes with her, he's playing with her, tells her it's this and that, and of course it's not. And eventually, it's like she says in the text, after so much nagging, so much nagging, he eventually gets exhausted in verse 17, so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands, because they paid her, and after putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so they began to subdue him. And one of the saddest sentences in all of scripture, and his strength left him. Now, if ever you wanted a model for a toxic relationship, this is it. Because here we see two people that are using each other. Samson is using Delilah for obvious reasons. And Delilah, being a woman in that part part of the world at that time, is trying to get a leg up in life, trying to increase her status. And so she sees an opportunity. Maybe she was a slave. Maybe she was a prostitute. Again, scholars can't agree on that. We just know that they're having this affair. But what we do know is that she took the opportunity to make some money by betraying Samson's trust. And it's very sad that so often in today's culture, I see so many people that are in relationships because it suits them to be in a relationship. It's good for them to be in a relationship. It's all about them, what they want, they have. And when the person can no longer meet their need, that person is no longer needed. And so we see a culture where families are being torn apart, marriage has been torn apart. And it's not because you know, the, most marriages don't work. It's because most people are narcissists and believe the only reason why the other person ever exists is to fulfill their needs. And I can tell you right now, that never works. And it leads us down unhealthy and unhelpful paths. And the truth is, the opposite of this, what they should have been doing, is serving one another. A healthy relationship model looks like, you're not perfect, I'm not perfect, but I'm making a commitment to you to love you, to protect you, to serve you, to sacrifice for you, to be there for you. Yes, I'll screw up and yes, I'll make mistakes, but my commitment is to you. I will never quit on you. That's what a marriage is. And when two people make that commitment, guess what happens? People actually do live happily ever after, mostly. Right? Because I want you to get to the whole idea of love and what love is. But it's a commitment. But rather than committing to each other in the context of marriage, we find a very real-life example of two people who are just using each other. Samson's messing with her. He's playing with her. He's just using her for her body, for his advantage, for his gain, for his pleasure. And she's thinking, man, I spent my whole life doing this. i got to get out of this place. i got to find a way to break free. And here's my opportunity. Because silver is expensive. 
And while Samson should have been on his feet doing the Lord's work, he's lying in Delilah's lap, running from it. See, Samson was hiding from his God-given calling. Samson was hiding from the plan and purpose that God has for him. And maybe you're watching right now online, or you're in the room, and you're hiding too. And the truth is, whatever this world can offer us, the pleasures that, are, that, that come with it, they're fleeting. They don't last forever. Ultimately, God's plan and purpose for us is the thing that will most fulfill us. And the sad thing is, is that long before Samson lost his physical strength, how he ended up in Delilah's lap was because he lost his spiritual strength. He lost sight of the primary relationship. See, it's good for us to be in a relationship. It's good for you if you're single to find a partner and get married. It's good for us as married people to have each other. But, it, but if, if that in some way replaces our relationship with God, it doesn't work. Because here's a scenario. What do you do in your relationship when both of you can't love each other anymore? Well, eject. Next. Like an Ikea catalog. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. And this new model's nice. What do you do? We, we, we hide the truth, right? We lie, we deceive, and eventually it falls apart. But when God is the center of your relationship, and you say, God, I just don't have the ability to keep going. I don't have the ability to change. I don't have the ability to be the man this woman needs me and deserves me to be. Give me strength. And strength comes first spiritually and then is manifest physically. You think, man, I could never wash dishes. Get on your knees and pray and let God change your heart and see how fast you can. If Jesus Christ can wash his disciples' feet, men, you can wash a few dishes. There's a prophetic word for someone today in Jesus' name. But the truth is this. This is just not true of Samson's story. It's true of all stories. What is done in deception will always lead to destruction. What is done in deception will invariably lead to destruction. Our destruction, the destruction of the other person, the destruction of the relationship. But something's going to be destroyed when we're not living the way we should live, when we're lying to each other and using each other and, and deceiving each other. Eventually that will destroy us. And here's the thing about sexual sin, just as a side note. Sexual sin isn't worse than any other sin. And it really bothers me how the church glorifies sexual sin more than any other sin. Okay? Sin is sin. End of story. Okay? The problem with sexual sin, however, is that it does have a destructive effect that other sins may not have. Like, for example, if, if, I'm, uh, if I'm, and again, I know it's kind of, it's a tough one to explain, but if I'm cheating someone, let's say I, 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 I I don't know, don't pay my, my, my parking fine or whatever. I'm cheating the system, not honoring my word. Okay, that might have a very limited effect. But if I'm using and abusing another human being, I'm multiplying that by every weekend. Like, I'm not just cheating the system, I'm hurting people. That's the problem with sexual sin. On the other end is a person who we're damaging and we're destroying. The Apostle Paul says this way, no other sin do we commit against our own body than sexual sin. And so Delilah and Samson, actually, both characters were hiding something. They were deceiving each other. It led to both of their destruction. Third character then is Thomas. Thomas is a New Testament character. And Thomas is one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, okay? And so you may know Thomas because Thomas is often called Doubting Thomas. You've heard the expression, ah, don't be a doubting Thomas. This is where it comes from. And the reason why Thomas was labeled a doubter was because we find that after Jesus had been crucified, buried, and rose again, Thomas, unlike all the others, did not believe in Jesus. Another way of saying this, that not all of Jesus' followers were true believers. When I say true believer, I don't mean in a biblical sense. 
I mean it in a marvel sense, okay? Like a true believer, completely committed. Thomas, like most of us, was on a journey, right? He loved Jesus. He was committed to Jesus, but he wasn't convinced of Jesus. Thomas was one of the 12, and yet Thomas was a skeptic. Whoa. You're telling me Thomas is one of Jesus' 12, original 12 disciples, and he was a skeptic? Yes, he was. And not only was he a skeptic in Jesus' ministry time, but even after his resurrection. Look with me in John chapter 20 and verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, who is also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. True believers. We have seen the Lord. He's like, yeah, right. Give me a break. But his words were, that was my paraphrase version, unless I see nail marks in his hands, I don't know why he said this, but put my finger where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. Now again, this is not some non-believer didn't know. This is one of the 12. And they're like, we have seen Jesus. He's like, listen, unless I can touch where I saw the I watched him die. Unless I can go and physically touch that place, I won't believe. A week later, disciples were in, in the house again, and Thomas, in this case, was with them. Which, by the way, there's an importance in being with, being together. It's why being in church is so important. Because our faith grows when we're together. Our faith grows when we're in the room. Okay, So it's good for us to be committed, as a side note. But through the doors, sorry, though, though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them. I love that. And he goes, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, there's two miracles here. The first miracle is Jesus is alive. I know sometimes we think faith is like a story, you know, magic and stuff. No, no. This is a resurrected body breathing and talking. This is a miracle. The miracle of the resurrection. And by the way, the Christian faith, if you're ever wondering, if you're watching online in a room and you're not a Christian, is not based on what my parents taught me or what church I was raised in. The Christian faith comes down to one fact. Jesus lives, or he doesn't. And if Jesus doesn't live, I'm the first to quit. Because what is all this about? But if Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, and he is who he said he was, Savior, Son of God, Messiah, everything changed. The first miracle is the resurrection. The second miracle is Jesus wasn't there when Thomas said the things he said. But Jesus was able to speak directly to Thomas's doubt because even though Jesus wasn't there physically, he heard Thomas's fears. He heard his doubts. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Because again, not only is the physical Jesus there, but Jesus knew what he said. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed, right? And many of us would say in our culture, if I could just see Jesus, if I could touch Jesus, if I could physically get around him, I would believe. When Jesus seeing this and knowing this makes a, says a blessing over everyone in this room, he says, but blessed are those who have not, not seen and yet have believed. How cool is that? Jesus knowing, being present in the moment and seeing the fullness of history speaks a blessing over every one of us who believe yet not having seen. And here's the point. Thomas was a devoted, he was devoted to Jesus. He wasn't a half disciple. He wasn't part of the crowd. He wasn't a fan. He was a follower. Yet Thomas also doubted Jesus. And I want to say to you, it's okay to be devoted to Jesus and sometime have doubts. Because if you don't have doubts as a devoted follower of Jesus, I don't know what Jesus you're devoted to. 
I don't, I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, believing in a risen Jewish Savior from 2,000 years ago isn't exactly easy. Am I the only one here? Right? Believing in someone that can heal the sick and raise the dead and multiply loaves and speak the storms and do all the things that Jesus did isn't exactly normal. We have doubts. And you may say as a skeptic, that's why I can't believe. That's why you shouldn't believe. Or you may ask, well, how do you believe? Well, the truth is the reason why we believe, the reason why we can be devoted and doubted is because faith does not omit doubt. Faith overcomes it. Faith does not say, there's no doubt. I have no doubt. Faith says, I see my doubt and I believe anyway. It's not necessarily blind faith, by the way. Because I think anyone in this room watching online is a Christ follower is a Christ follower because they've experienced Jesus. Like I was, I wasn't raised a Christian. I was against Christians. I used to laugh at Christians. I used to, when I was a teenager, me and my friends, we'd get around, we'd turn on God TV, and we would laugh at these ridiculous American Christians with their funny hair and their suits and always asking for money. We'd mock them. Oh, look at those Egypts. Oh my gosh. And other words that I can't use in the microphone. Like we would, we, would, we would laugh at Christians. I thought the church was ridiculous. All these mad people waving flags and lifting their hands and praying and Christian karaoke. I used, to, I used to laugh at this stuff. And I said, I would, you know, in my mind, I'd never, ever, ever become one. Right? And then God screwed up my plans because he showed up in my hotel room one night when I was in, when I was in Germany and changed my life. I did a quick turnaround and said, I need to give the rest of my life to helping other people find Jesus. Because he changes our hearts and he changes our lives. Yet our faith does not exist in this this vacuum. Faith overcomes doubt. Faith gives us reason. It gives us answers. It gives us power to overcome doubt. Faith is not a belief in the absence of doubt. Rather, faith is belief despite it. And so Thomas is a great example, and I should encourage you, if you're someone who finds yourself struggling, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. But you can also have faith. And faith is seeing the reality. Faith is seeing the impossibility. Faith is seeing the opposition and trusting God anyway. The fourth character, back to the Old Testament, is a lady called Esther. Esther. Now Esther was a Jewish queen married to a pagan king, at a time where it was not only unpopular to be a believer, but it was dangerous. And there's a long backstory to this, but basically a foreign kingdom came to the nation of Israel, took all people captive as slaves. Esther was chosen to be a queen. She became a queen, this pagan king. Uh, But she kind of kept her faith. She kept her belief under wraps. She hid it for fear that she would be found out. And eventually it just happened, transpired, that one of the king's, uh, you know, court officials just took a disliking to our people and tried to get a, a decree passed to wipe out everyone who was a believer, every single person, kill them all. And uh, Esther's uncle, who's a guy called Mordecai, confronts her and says, in verse 12 of Esther chapter 4, says, um, 13, he says, uh, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Don't think just because no one knows you're a Christian or a believer or trusting God that you'll get away from this because if it happens to one, it'll happen to all. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance, here's Mordecai's faith in the face of destruction. Even though it seems like there's no way out of this and even if you don't only part of the solution, God will make a way. God will make a way. Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish and who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such 
time as this. Who knows that you're in the job you're in, living the street you live on, the apartment block you're in. Who knows that you're not there just because you're there by accident or random coincidence. Maybe God has placed you there. Maybe God has placed you in this church. Maybe God has placed you in this city for such a time as this. Maybe God really does have a plan and purpose. And even though it's not like every day at breakfast God tells you his perfect plan, but like your life is unfolding in the direction that God is orchestrating and using for your good and for his glory. Maybe you, you are where you are for such a time as our satisfaction, our fulfillment in our journey becomes so much more when we align our plan to God's plan. When we ask the question, God, what is this time? Why am I here? What is your purpose for my life? But again, that is a message for another day. What we see in the character of Esther is that she was hiding her belief in the hope nothing bad would happen. Come on, let's be honest. How many of us have hidden our belief in work, on the street, just standing in a queue somewhere, because we really hope that by not knowing what we believe, they won't have to dislike us, think bad about us, treat us differently, talk about us differently. Sometimes it's so easy just to hide the fact that even though we live in 21st century Ireland and we mostly are normal and we kind of wear the same clothes and do the same things, that actually we believe in Jesus Christ. And we're not weird. Like, we're definitely not normal, but we're definitely not weird. Do you know what I'm saying? There's a difference. Okay? Um, Esther understood that pain. She understood the tension because she, she was able to live a life that, that even though she had this great influence and great peace, no one knew that she was a believer. She feared that her identity would be a liability. Come on. And we fear it too. We fear, man, if I go to my boss and say, I can't work on Sundays. And they go, why not? Because I'm a Christian. And they go, and? And I go, well, because it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's part of my worship that I'm committed to church and I go to church. It's a value in my life. Well, uh, what? And they go, oh, no, here we go. We're afraid that if, we, if, we're, if, we're, if we're upfront about who we are and what's important to us, that people won't like us or will reject us. And here's the truth. Sometimes they will. Right? Some, Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted on my behalf. Do you know when we're persecuting Jesus' behalf? When we say something or do something or live in a certain way that honors God and makes us uncomfortable. One of the reasons why we don't see more you know, of God moving is because we have hidden our faith. It's inconvenient. It makes us uncomfortable. So we suppress it and hide it and we keep it personal. And we keep it secret. And we come to church with a little faith. And we open up and open up in church. And we close again and we go home. And we're saying, why isn't God moving in our nation? Why, why isn't the kingdom advancing? I'll tell you why. Because the Christians are afraid. They're hiding their faith. Because they're bought into a lie. My identity in Christ is a liability. No, it's not. Because here's what I believe. Our world is instantly better when people love and follow Jesus. Now let me be clear, our world is not better if people are Christian or go to church. That doesn't work. Religion has failed us. But when you love, serve, and follow Jesus, you're more generous. You're more kind. You're more forgiving. Come on, you, you, you're, you're, you're more gentle. You, 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 you live your life in a way that's always trying to put the other person first. How many of us want a marriage like that? Want to work for something like that? Want to live in a city where everyone's going, hey, I'm not just here for my own interests. I'm looking out for the interests of others. Our world would be instantly better if more people could love and follow Jesus. But how are they ever going to know Jesus 
if they don't see people loving and following him. Esther hid her faith because she thought her identity was a liability. I think the greatest asset that we have as Christ followers is our faith in Jesus. Now you may be gifted and you might be good looking and intelligent and have a great job. None of those things are your best asset. Your best asset is when your body fails you and there's no money in your bank account and no one loves you and she ran away from you and no one follows you on Instagram. God has a plan and purpose for your life. He has called you. He loves you. He's a plan and purpose. And he's got a direction for you to go. And even though everyone abandons us, God never fails us. He never fails. That's why as Christians we can be on our deathbeds still glorifying God. Because in sickness and health, better for worse, richer for poor, he will always be faithful to us. Our Christianity isn't something we should be ashamed of or hide just because right now it's culturally unpopular. It's something we should celebrate and in a way be proud of. Because we're trying to live lives that make the world a better place. And I understand people oftentimes confuse our faith with religion. Sometimes there's a bit of an explanation needed. But let's not be like Esther and hide our faith. Let's look for opportunities to demonstrate it in love, service, and action. Fifth and the second, second last one is, of course, King David. And King David was described as a ma- being a man after God's own heart. He was the greatest uh, Old Testament king, He, you know, which under his leadership, the king of Israel reached his pinnacle in so many ways, and his son Solomon took it on to full uh, you know, completion. And David was set apart, right through scripture, as a very special man to God's plan. But despite all David's accolades, despite defeating Goliath and all the great things God, David did, David ultimately was human. And like we said at the beginning, by definition, being human means he was a sinner. And David made many mistakes. And one of his most colossal mistakes was with a woman called Bathsheba. And it just so happened that Bathsheba was a married woman, and when David, kind of like Samson, David was supposed to be out leading the army at a certain time of year, but decided, eh, I think I'll just stay at home and watch Netflix. And, uh, and one day, walking on his roof, he sees Bathsheba taking a bath, okay? And if you see Bathsheba taking a bath, you should look away and run for your life. He didn't. He kicked up another illicit affair, a lot of illicit affairs in the Bible, people. It's crazy. And... Uh, and basically slept with her and, uh, and got her pregnant. And then freaks out because now he's like, man, if people find out that not only have I committed adultery, I've taken this man's wife. And it just so happened that her husband was a soldier in David's army. Like, how terrible. And so David's like, how do I get out of this? And it's a long story. But in the end, he realized the only way to, to, to solve this situation is to cover it up. So he orchestrates one of his leaders to have her husband killed. Okay, this is true. It's killed. In the Bible, what? He argues to have her husband killed so he can quietly take her as her own. And oh my gosh, she's pregnant. What a coincidence, right? Thinking no one would notice. Until one day, a prophet by the name of Nathan is praying. And God says to Nathan, here's David's sin, go confront him. Second Samuel 12, verse 5. Nathan tells him in a metaphor the story of how this rich man came along and took this lamb from this poor man and, and, and killed it and used it to entertain his guests. And he asked David as the king, what should be done, right? What should be done for, against this rich man who took advantage and took this poor man's uh, lamb? And David burned with anger against the metaphorical man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
you, I mean, not in a good sense. You're the man. No, no, you're the man. There's you're the man, and it's you're the man. It was you're the man. You are the man. And instantly it became obvious to David, Nathan knew that God revealed to Nathan all that he had done and that he had been found out. And again, you can read on in Samuel 12 and 13 what happens is a crazy, crazy. And of course, the Lord shows grace and mercy and redemption in the end. But David had to come to the surface and confess his sin because he had done a terrible thing. And what's so interesting is they did, he burned with anger against the metaphorical man. Why? Because very often we can be angry against, we can be most against in others that which we find most disgust in ourselves. Isn't it true? The thing that disgusts us about us most, we hate in other people. And we call out and we condemn it and we beat it down when in actual fact, we have our own issues. This is why we need friends. We need people in our lives who can tell us the truth. If you don't have anyone in your life that can say to you, you're being an Egypt. You're in trouble. If you don't have a friend, a spouse, a group, a church, someone who can call you on your crap and say, hey, you're a little bit off the rails, you're on the crooked path here, you're going to end up in a very destructive place. This is why we talk so much about community. Why? Because community leads to accountability. And accountability isn't control. Accountability is like those guardrails on the road. That when you're going around a corner too fast, you might lose control at the guardrail, but you don't drive your car off the cliff face to your death. Because we all lose control sometimes, right? We all screw up. But we need people, we need community, like a guardrail to stop us driving off the cliff edge into oblivion. It's one thing to do stupid things or say stupid things to the people you love. It's another thing for, for them to be unchecked and to grow and to get worse and to cause destruction. We all need to be rooted in community. That's why we talk about connect groups so much in our church. Because with community comes accountability. And every single one of us needs people who love us enough to tell us the truth. You're being an agent. Stop thinking like that, talking like that, rationalizing like that, treating people like that. It's not good enough. We need accountability. And David didn't have that accountability. And so he made choices that led to deception, which led to covering up, which led to destruction, which led to his humiliation. Because what's hidden will eventually be found out. The sixth and final person. This is quite amazing as we begin to bring this message to a close. We actually don't know her name. She's an unnamed woman. All we're told is that, this is the New Testament now, this woman had an issue of blood. Okay, She had this, she had this medical issue which meant she kept bleeding. And she did everything she could within her power to fix herself. She was ill and, and spent all of her money. She, she spent all, we're told, all of her money on doctors to try get fixed, to get well, to get healed. And despite all the financial and all the medical and all the social things she did, she couldn't get healed. And in Mark chapter 5, the story goes like this. Verse 25 is this. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 12 years she was sick. 12 years she was, she was suffering with this thing. She'd suffered with a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. So not only was she suffering, but she was broke. And instead of getting better, we're told she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Now again, there's lots of things happening here. I'll explain in a second why. And said, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Wow, what faith. Like she can see the reality and thought, there's something, I don't fully know who he is. She wasn't fully convinced he was son of God. She just knew if I can just get close to Jesus. Enough to touch his clothes, I'll be healed. 
Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed, freed, freed from her suffering. And the reason why she kept behind him in the crowd was because in that culture, as a woman with bleeding, that was deemed to be culturally unclean, which meant you weren't allowed to leave your house. You aren't allowed to socialize. You aren't allowed to attend festivals or significant religious events. Because of her condition, because of her issue, for 12 years, she'd been cut off of society. She'd been robbed of worship, robbed of fellowship, and robbed of any chance of courtship. She couldn't have a relationship. She couldn't hang out with friends, and she couldn't go to church because she was culturally unclean. 12 years of human interaction. There's a thing in psychological terms called the failure to thrive syndrome. And this is what happens to us as human beings when we don't have physical contact. Like we literally break down. Human beings, if they're, if they're allowed to exist without any kind of human recognition or contact, we literally die. Literally, literally we die. We need contact. We need connection. We need to be around other people. And she was robbed of all this because of her illness. And the lie probably was, you're never going to be accepted. You're never going to be loved. There's no one out there that could ever fix you. And one day she saw Jesus. And she thought, I've got nothing to lose. I've spent all my money. I'm publicly and socially humiliated and ridiculed. Why not? And this is the thing about lies. And if you're watching online or in the room and you're not a Christ follower, you're thinking, man, I don't know if I should follow Jesus or give him a chance or open my heart. Well, this is what lies do. Lies deprive us. Lies deprive us. Lies, lies lead us down a, down a road where we're not seen, we're not wanted, and we're not loved. Lies say, fear says, you, can ne- you don't want to be seen. If they see you, they'll hate you. Lies say, they don't want you. If they knew who you really were, they'd reject you. Lies say, you can't be loved. You're unlovable. You're only loved if, if you, like I said last week, if you doctor up your picture on Instagram and look all pretty like. You're only loved if you have followers. You're only loved if you have money. You're only loved if you wear that brand and go to that club, have these friends, live in this place. Lies, 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 lies. And this woman was hopeless. And she was broken. And she was desperate. And it's in her desperation that she came to Jesus. Here's Jesus, this man, this teacher, this leader, as we, as we see in time. This is God in the flesh. How is God going to treat a woman who sneaks up behind him, not even ask for permission, touches his cloak? How is God going to respond when other people around him see this unclean woman and call for her punishment because what she did wasn't allowed in the day? How is God going to respond to this suffering that went on for 12 years, all the money, all the doctors, all the shame? We're told in the text that Jesus didn't reject her. He saw her. He welcomed her. And he loved her. Come on, it's worth celebrating. And maybe you feel today a bit like that. Like, man, if God saw, he'd reject. No, no, God sees you. God welcomes you and God loves you. And there's something else that's interesting in the text because we see that God's presence leads to God's power. It's as she got into God's presence that God's power was made real in her life. And again, like I said at the beginning, the gospel, the good news, is that the solution for human rejection is heavenly reconciliation. The bottom line is, as we think about Moses, Delilah, as we think about Thomas, as we think about David and Esther, as we think about the woman with the issue of blood, we have a choice. We have a choice. Either we can be found out in life, or we can let it out. 
Either we can bury it and hide it in the hope that no one finds it, or we can confess it and say, here it is. I'm not proud of it. I'm not, uh, I'm not happy about it. I'm ashamed of it. But here's what it is. Because ultimately, what is hidden in life cannot be healed. We think the lie is, what is hidden cannot hurt us. The truth is, what is hidden will eventually hurt us and hurt others. But the promise is that if we unhide it, if we, if we don't, rather than covering it up, if we dig it up, it can be healed. 